So we should all apply ourselves now to the practice of meditation. And this formal practice of sitting is the means we use to develop and nourish the mind so that our samadhi or concentration can grow and further develop panya or wisdom. In the Buddha's dispensation, the quality of wisdom is developed for the sake of destroying and eliminating all suffering in the citta or mind. And the citta is of the nature to constantly move and display agitation. It rarely rests in any degree of stillness, constantly jumping to the past and the future, constantly moving from issue to issue and thinking without cease. We can't simply tell ourselves to stop thinking, but we can direct our thought towards one specific object and train the mind in this way to grow more and more still. If we don't do this, if we fail to practice with the mind, then what thinking we display moves from avijja or ignorance and gives rise to sankhara. And it is within this sankhara aspect of the chain of dependent origination that we find the sense of self. This is how avijja leads to a sense of self. It is the second link. If we have good thoughts, we attach to them as ourselves. If we have bad thoughts, we similarly attach to them as a self and take them as ours, me or mine. And this is how ignorance leads us to take and appropriate the various thoughts we have as ours and take them personally. If we do not practice and apply ourselves then to formal meditation, the chitta or mind will fail to be quiet and just like an animal's mind, it will move constantly in the untrained, undisciplined manner that those who have not practiced usually think in. And such thinking leads inevitably to suffering. The Buddha built great spiritual perfections over an inconceivably long time for the sake of developing and bringing us this teaching. He developed this barmi for the sake of developing the qualities needed to train disciples and bring into being the full triple gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. As Buddhists, we have tremendous resources then we have a refuge in the Buddha. And because the symbol, because the thing we take as our highest aspiration, the Buddha, is 
the representative of the completely purified heart, the mind of an arahant, then this is of immense power and helps support our practice in the deepest sense possible. If the Buddha could destroy the suffering and the kilesa, the defilements of others, Longpur Cha said that none of us would suffer. However, the Buddha is not able to destroy the kilesas of others in this way. He developed his own knowing and knowledge and dispelled his own ignorance and then taught the way to do so to those around him. And this is his gift, his singular teaching that he's given to all of us who came after. So to practice in line with this teaching is of paramount importance. We develop the practice and the good in our hearts grows and the bad goes to smaller and smaller aspects of our lives. It diminishes. We develop the good, we abandon the evil and we purify the mind. This is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. As Buddhists, we have faith, and this faith helps us maintain effort on the path to the end of suffering. We see more and more how the path will help to destroy what suffering we have in our lives. And seeing this, we become more naturally motivated to practice. Wiria or effort grows. We become determined to find a way out of suffering as we see the level of suffering in our lives. So the Buddha gave us this teaching. It began in India and spread to Nepal, Bhutan, then to Tibet, China, it crossed the ocean to Sri Lanka. And in the child or children of the great emperor Ashoka, that is Dhamma Mitra and Mahinda, spreading it in the island of Ceylon. Finally, Uttaratera brought it across the ocean, finally to Thailand. And from Thailand, it now spreads further to Europe, to America, to Scandinavia, to the West, where the Buddhists who are entering into this path also develop in great faith. Such faith develops little by little. We start with the basics of goodness, giving food to the bowls of the monks, putting alms food into the bowls of those monks passing us. And at first, children in a family may not be interested in developing goodness at this level, but a good parent will lead them to the monastery, will lead by example, will show them how to put food in the bowl, will set an example and encourage them towards such small but 
but essential acts of goodness. Similarly with chanting, although a child may not want to chant at first, the parent will show them through example the benefit of chanting, of paying devotion, and perhaps even direct them to chant every evening before they fall asleep. We build goodness as Buddhists in all of these ways. We give, we develop ethical conduct, we develop the quality of dana or giving. And we can give many things, but a gift of land is of extreme importance because the gift of land allows every other aspect of the monastery to develop. From a gift of land, the boat, the Uposita hall we now sit in developed, the Bodhisattva Vihara next to us developed, the Chedi or Stupa developed. This gift of land is the basis of all others for the monastery. But merit alone, even made through such great gifts, cannot end suffering. It must lead on to wisdom. Just as food sometimes needs to be cured in salt or some other marinade before it is edible or will be preserved, similarly, good merit must be cured with wisdom before it will be preserved and carried into the heart in a more lasting way. If we keep good sila or morality, if we give, then we will not live lives that are troubled, but still the mind will have a tendency to proliferate, to move in an untrained manner. And so we must bring to bear constantly and increasingly, the qualities of sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. We must develop this quality in the citta of knowing, the element of knowing, both the ayatana, the sense bases externally and those internally. As we develop this quality of knowing in tandem with the external sense bases, the impressions of taste, smell, touch, hearing, sight, and so on will impact the mind, but more and more, instead of entering directly into the heart, they will be known and let go of. If we develop this quality of knowing in tandem with the internal sense base, the ayatana inside, then similarly what Aramana or mental impressions arise in the mind will no longer have complete control over our mood. We will have a degree of separation and perspective. It's natural for the chitta to attach to such things. The untrained mind cannot help itself. If we like something, the chitta moves towards it and grabs it. If we dislike something, the chitta that is untrained pushes away. And so this development or developing of upekka, equanimity, is essential and of paramount importance. However, at first, 
what quality of equanimity we develop is not necessarily of the most refined nature. At first, those states we achieve where we do not fall into liking or disliking may simply be a state of calm or quiet. We know that we have entered into a more refined and elevated state of upekka or equanimity when our heart is filled with piti sukha, rapture and pleasure. And the upekka originating in tandem with these qualities, with the sense of deep well-being, the upekka that is present because the mind is happy and so does not need to like or dislike in the same way. This is a more powerful version of equanimity. However, the path to such elevated states of equanimity is still at its most basic, the simple directive to not fall into liking and disliking. As we practice day in and day out, we watch the mind and try to restrain it from liking and disliking, from attaching and pushing away. However, if we have failed to give ourselves time every day to practice formal meditation, to rest in quiet and stillness, then the mind will not be able to help itself, but will attach, will push away, will like and dislike. And so we must, just as we must feed the body and give it exercise to strengthen it, so we must feed the mind and bring it to stillness to strengthen it. For the mind is different in the body in that what nourishes it and gives it strength is resting in quiet rather than movement. If the mind thinks too much and contemplates too much, then it will not see clearly. However, if it is imbued with samadhi, it will be able to see and perceive clearly the nature of the body as impermanent suffering and not self. For example, we might contemplate this blood which runs through our veins. If one takes 200 cc's of that blood out, then clearly we see that it is not ourselves. However, as it flows in our body, still within the boundaries of our skin, we don't think twice before considering it part of ourself. It's, but it's the same blood either way. But the mind that is still will be able to see clearly that it is not in fact ourselves. However, if we contemplate without any quiet or calm in the mind, then such contemplation will devolve into simple sanya or perception, memory, and fail to penetrate deeply. However, not every person is the same. Some are of the wisdom character and must depend more on such contemplation to still the mind. They might contemplate by separating the body into the various elements of earth, water, fire, and air and see clearly in that way that it is not 
theirs is not a self. And this is how we see dukkha in the body. We see the self, how it originates in this sense. And by penetrating the true nature of the body, we let go of the roots of this sense of self. If we cannot achieve enough calm to penetrate in this way, if the mind is constantly moving, then we should return to Budo or the breath, our meditation object of calm. For example, we might count the breaths, one, two, three, four, five, and backwards, five, four, three, two, one. Or a single breath, we might count through uh, all five as well. And if we do this, the mind will grow more and more bright and we will achieve a sense of well-being as samadhi develops. If we do this continuously, the sense of well-being will become strengthened and we will be able to see clearly truth. This is the path. This is our work as those who take refuge in the triple gem. We can still see Dhamma even in this day and age. And if we develop the path in this way, then at some point the path factors will gather and we will penetrate to truth or nirvana. Sometimes this nibbana might come just briefly in the letting go of Aramana and the seeing of the fact that the mental impressions we experience during the day are not in fact ourself. Such brief insight, however, is still a taste of liberation. And by developing such tastes over time, we eventually arrive at true gnosis or penetration. Ajahn Chah taught that the kilesa will eventually dissolve through such practice, just like an ice cube placed in warm water will slowly diminish until it is gone. And this is what happens to the defilements in the heart as we subject them to the goodness and power of the practice. If we practice in this way, we can see little by little all things as empty. We begin to purify the heart and the wisdom brings out of the heart, both ours and then those around us, true knowledge. Without such knowledge, then the mind has the tendency to constantly try to appropriate all the elements of our experience, including our body and personality. It's similar to a bird grabbing onto a branch and trying to claim the tree for itself. 
This is mine, it says, not realizing the true nature of the situation. Just having encountered this teaching speaks to our level of spiritual merit, of our barami, the fact that we have encountered and been interested enough in the Buddha's dispensation to practice today and in the past speaks to how much goodness we already have developed in our pasts. And so we continue to develop this goodness in the present. We build the monastery externally for the sake of building a monastery internally. What's outside develops what's in. And such development of the heart is not beyond the scope of what we are capable of. We can do it. The Eightfold Path has the ability to dispel all the defilements in us when it is developed. Samadhi grows. Doubt dis uh, dissipates. And from these basics of the practice, true faith will become strong enough to take us to the end of this path and issue into liberation. We just must continue to practice, to keep working at it. So, if we have not yet achieved such knowledge, then frequently we must rely simply on patient endurance. But this quality of patient endurance is also of great benefit and will eventually lead to samadhi or a firmness of mind. For example, if we see fear arise but do not follow it, then we will pass through the mental impression of fear and may come to a state of calm on the other end. Then when wisdom has developed, that is when fear disappears completely. For example, we might see clearly that there's no need to be afraid of the skeleton because we, each of us, carry a skeleton within our own bodies. So why become afraid of it? This is how wisdom can lead to the complete surpassing of all of these difficult states. We see through them eventually. However, in the meantime, once again, patient endurance is necessary to keep our morality intact and our practice developing. In regards to speech, for example, though we might feel anger or annoyance, we do not act or speak from that. We do not gossip. We keep such defilement from spilling out into our external action, either by body, speech, or mind, or body or speech. So now we find ourselves at the end of the Vasa. And this period of time, the Katina, harkens back to the time of the Buddha, 
when 30 monks set out for Jetavana, hoping to go pay respects to the Buddha. However, before they arrived, the rains retreat began when they were still 80 kilometers away, and they had to enter the Vasa without meeting yet the Buddha. After the three months rains retreat had ended, they set out again, and walking through the rice fields, their robes, which had already become tattered and rotten from the rains retreat, were further ripped and left as barely scraps. So when they finally had the chance to pay respects to the Buddha, he took compassion, he took pity on them, and out of compassion declared that at the end of the rains retreat, that monks who had spent the rains in a monastery, uh, if a certain number, could take advantage of special privileges and ceremonies with the laity there in order to get, again, the robes uh, or new robes as the old ones they had may, may have become uh, rotten and fallen into disrepair. This is where the katina and the katina privileges come from. And he then went on to teach the monks and all 30 achieved arahantship. So in everything, we pursue the highest goal. Just as in work or study, we set our goal at the highest possible point and work towards it steadily. So also in Dhamma practice, we establish our sights at the highest level and work towards it constantly through our meditation and through all the other basics of practice, which I have expounded on here. So today is October 3rd, 2020. And because it is a night and occasion for developing goodness, we will stay up late and listen to the teachings of various monks. And I encourage you all to continue to develop your practice along this path. <laughs>